Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Coming soon, there's a teaser. But now, let's resume our engagement in the book of Acts, updates out of the way, and as we prepare to hear what God's Spirit has to say to us this morning from Acts chapter 4, I'd like to begin by asking one question, uh, one thought-provoking question. Uh, Here's the question. The question is, what has your faith changed? Uh, What has your faith changed? What has your faith, if you'd say you have faith, right, what has your faith changed? Think about that for a bit, if you will. Um, Has your faith changed your beliefs? Maybe your habits? Maybe it's changed your relationships, your spending? your view of yourself, your view of your parents. Uh, Perhaps your faith has changed your priorities, Uh, the music you listen to, the TV you watch, maybe not so much, that's all right. What has your faith changed? You see, many times when I ask people that question, the answer that they give is personal. Uh, My faith has changed my self-understanding. My faith has changed my reaction to certain circumstances. My faith has changed my lifestyle. And those answers, they aren't bad answers at all, and they aren't wrong answers either. In fact, those are beautiful answers uh, that reflect the work that God can do deep inside each and every one of us. But this morning, as we engage Acts 4, I'd like to suggest that our answer to that question, that your answer to that question, that my answer to that question, what has your faith changed, could be a little bigger a little broader, a little more expansive in scope. What exactly do I mean? Well, imagine this. Imagine that we call up our friend Elon uh, and we ask him to borrow his personal time machine because we all know he has one, right? So we say, hey, Elon, we need to use the time machine and we go all the way back to 70 AD and we, we look all around Jerusalem. We find Peter and John. They're the principal people we'll discuss in this morning's test. And we ask them our question. We say, hey, Peter and John, what has your faith changed. I'm convinced more and more that they would answer, hey, our faith changed our city, Jerusalem. Our faith changed our neighborhood. Our faith changed the whole region where we live. In fact, our faith went on to change the world. See, what I'm getting at is this. Our faith is supposed to make a difference to those around us, not just change what's inside us which is why this morning we're going to talk about something that doesn't always get much airplay in North American faith communities. See, in our communities, we often talk about the strength of our faith, and that's a good conversation. You know, is our faith strong or is it weak? Are we feeling it or are we not? Is it vibrant or is it stale? Those are all great questions. But we talk a lot about the strength of our faith. We talk a lot about the sincerity of our faith, right? Does our faith feel authentic now or does it feel like we're faking it? Is it deep or is it shallow? That's good too. But we don't frequently discuss the scope of our faith. We don't often ask, is our faith just affecting us or is our commitment to Jesus something that's having a broader impact, something that's blessing our neighborhood, our city, and our 
world. And so if Acts chapter 4 has anything to teach us this morning, it's that too often our faith becomes too small. It can be too narrowly focused on just personal behavior modification or private moments of prayer and reflection. And again, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. They're just not everything. And this morning, I think God wants to remind us that there's something bigger going on, something more expansive that he's doing, that we're invited to be a part of, something that our faith is truly intended to be like good news to other people, not just good news to ourselves. And it is all there in Acts chapter 4, and I'd love to show it to you. So will you join me there now? If you have a Bible with you, Acts chapter 4, you can find it on your phone, turn there in the book, or the verses we'll discuss are going to be on the screen as well. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, there we read, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So you see, Acts 4 begins immediately where Acts 3 left off. And if you were here last week, you might remember that Peter and John, in Acts chapter 3, they healed a man who had been unable to walk since he was born. And this healing, it took place in the temple, and there were lots of people nearby who witnessed it. And I'm telling you, they were uh, shook, as the kids say, right? They were, tell me if I use this right, uh, Jalen, they were standing, Peter and John, is that fair? I stand. Uh, so they were like, they were so amazed at what they'd seen. There's a healing that has taken place, and they could not believe that someone who had been unable to walk for 40 years was now able to use his legs. And so a crowd gathered, and Peter and John began telling them about Jesus. But then the priests and the temple guards showed up, and they weren't excited at all. To the contrary, they were very frustrated by Peter and John because they were teaching that Jesus is God, that Jesus is someone worth following and worthy of worship. And they were doing it. They were giving that teaching in all places, like in the temple, You know, I'm sure these folks were thinking, like, don't these guys have any respect for our tradition, for our nation's religion? They're talking about some brand new belief system in this most sacred of places. And so the religious leaders, they are very mad. And they're trying to kill the buzz. They want to diminish Peter and John's voices and silence their teaching. And so the temple guards in verse 3, they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, They put them in jail until the next day. Now notice this. Uh, There were no charges brought against Peter and John. There's no like real allegations or substantial charges to come their way. There's just kind of disdain for them and for their teaching. And so because of technicalities, uh, because of procedural rules, because it was evening and maybe like the magistrate's gone home for the day, right? So there's no one that can really release you from jail. Peter and John are made to stay in jail overnight. And this is entirely unfair. This is probably illegal, totally unjust. And as far as we know, this was their first time being imprisoned for their faith. And if you know history, you know this won't be the last. 
But then the next morning arrives and the religious leaders pull Peter and John from their jail cells and they bring them in for questioning and they say, hey, this teaching that you've been giving in the temple and this like powerful, miraculous, like these signs, these healings that you've been doing, like how are you doing that? You know, where's the authority? Where's the source of power? What's behind this courage and this power that you have? And Peter, who's probably feeling just a little feisty, you know, after an illegal, unfair night in jail, he responds to them by saying, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, and we're being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter says, this guy who can walk now, uh, he's healed because we've been given power from that other guy that you hated and thought you could kill, right? The man who defeated death, who's alive now, Jesus, that person who you just like couldn't stand, he's the reason that we can teach with power and heal with power. He's the reason this man's legs have been restored. You know, Peter's like, you're really going to get after us for doing something kind. You're going to lock us up for helping a man walk. And this kind of frustration, this like retaliation for a total act of kindness, it actually reminds me of a true story that happened in Kansas City. Did you all know like I used to live and work in Kansas City, so I've been in the Paris of the Plains, as they say, and Kansas City is the land of uh, Patrick Mahomes and barbecue. Uh, and so we love the Chiefs, it's Chiefs Kingdom. We love our barbecue and each year the city hosts, it's called the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Okay, the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. And if you like me or you enjoy getting the meat sweats, this is an event for you. It's a, it's a massive event where thousands of contestants show up and they all want to prove that like their meat is the best meat, their barbecue is the best. And so judges are on hand to evaluate each brisket, every rib. And in 2016, the organizers of the American Royal thought it would be nice if each barbecue pit donated their extra meat, right? So you make a bunch of meat for the judges to try, but you got leftover meat. The organizers thought it would be nice if each uh, truck donated their extra meat to local shelters and community centers. Right, seems like a good idea. The only problem was the local health department did not like that. And instead they ordered that over 700 pounds of barbecue be thrown into the dumpster. Y'all, oh guys, this was hot news in Kansas City. 700 pounds of barbecue thrown in the dumpster. And not only that, they doused it all with bleach afterwards so that no one could go in there and fish it out. Oh, you guys, oh, you guys. So imagine the outrage, right? Here's meat that just hours before, you know, judges were tasting. This is the best of the best barbecue available in this like big competition. Now it's been thrown in a dumpster. It's so unjust, no one's allowed to have it. I mean, the, like the fancy folks were just eating it, but now it can't be served to some of the city's most vulnerable residences. You can imagine outrage erupted. Okay, I mean, the whole city is furious at the health department. And it makes me think of this moment in Acts 4 because Peter and John had done something kind and selfless and now they've been unfairly punished for it. And Peter makes that clear to the religious leaders, right? You're going to get mad at us for doing this nice thing. And as they listen to Peter and John's response, they realize we're in a predicament because they don't like the message that Peter and John are sharing at all, but they know they can't argue with the reality before their eyes. 
I mean, now there's a man that everyone knows couldn't walk who can now walk, and they realize, gosh, if we try to jail Peter and John, or if we try to prevent them from teaching, I mean, we're going to have a revolt on our hands, right? People are going to be so frustrated. And so because they're amazed by the healing power that Peter and John have, the people and like the leaders know they're going to fight back, the leaders instead, they decide, hey, we'll just threaten Peter and John. We can't like imprison them, but we'll just threaten them a little bit. And so they command them to quit teaching and to quit healing and to quit preaching. And the subtext is plain. It's like, hey, if you guys keep this up, uh, we can throw you in jail again. And you know what you did with your friend Jesus? I mean, you say he's alive, but we're pretty sure we had him killed and we could do the same to you. So they give a whole bunch of threats. And in verse 21, we read, after further threats, so threat upon threat, they let them go because they could not decide how to punish them again, mainly because they knew the people would be mad because all the people were praising God for what had happened. So let's pause there. Acts 4 opens with a confrontation. Peter and John are opposed and ultimately imprisoned for doing something good, for healing a man who could not walk. And you can probably sum up this whole first section of Acts 4 by saying, hey, in Acts 4, the first half, uh, Jesus' followers are unfairly harassed. They are unfairly harassed, punished, even though they did nothing wrong. But notice this, they, they don't make themselves victims or martyrs. They don't take to social media and try to organize a boycott. They don't mobilize a mass mailing trying to make a point or make some money off of their experience. They don't complain that their rights are being infringed upon or protest that their free exercise of religion is under assault. In Acts chapter 4, Jesus' followers, they are unfairly harassed and imprisoned. But how did they respond? I mean, they do something incredible, uh, something unexpected, something that I think should cause us all to pause and evaluate our own faith. And we find their response in Acts 4, 23, it says, upon their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, namely all those threats, right? And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So Peter and John, they're released from their questioning after an illegal night in jail. They make it back to their friends. They tell them what's happened, and then they all gather together to pray to pray. I mean, when faced with unfair opposition, these disciples decide to pray. And what's great is that we have like their prayer. It's been preserved for us. It was written down. Here's what they prayed. They said, Lord, keep us safe. Uh, wrap your arms around us and protect us. Save us from prison and jail. Help us win back our reputation and to defend our right to preach. Spare us from persecution. Help our sore backs and our tired bodies after that rough night in the prison cell floor, if it be your will. Uh, bless us with the comfort and encouragement of community. Give us traveling mercies as we move around the city. Prevent us from experiencing anything like that ever again. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not what they prayed. Sorry. That's what, uh, that's what we might pray. I'm sorry. We got lost for a little bit. Uh, we find their prayer in Acts 4, verse 24. I'm sorry. They prayed, a sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And this is a psalm that David wrote where he said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. So essentially they're like, man, David knew it was futile to try to stop you, Lord. They said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the first part of this prayer, they're like, man, Lord, we know that you're in charge. We know that you're the sovereign king. And if people try to stand against the work that you're doing in the world, it's just not going to work. David said it. Herod and Pontius Pilate tried it. It didn't happen. And then they say, but now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I mean, when faced with unfair opposition, the disciples decide to pray. And they don't ask for safety or security or comfort or protection. They ask for boldness and courage and power. And they prayed as if God had work that he wanted to do through them. They prayed as if their neighborhood and their city and their community depended upon them. See, here's the big idea from Acts chapter 4, as far as I can see it. Uh, our prayers are too often too small. Our prayers are too often too small, too, too narrow in scope, too limited in what they imagine, too influenced by cultural values, too self-centered. In fact, in 2017, Barna Research Group conducted a survey asking people to identify the content that fills their prayers. And the most frequent answer was that prayers generally given, um, this is a little hard to see, but I'll say it, they're focused on like gratitude and thanksgiving. So most folks said, hey, when I pray, uh, gratitude and thanksgiving. And then there's the needs of like my family and community, by which they mean like immediate community, kind of like my friends, right? Then I need some like personal guidance in crisis. Uh, I want to pray for my health and wellness, uh, confession and forgiveness. Uh, there's, you know, safety in my daily travel or tasks, a sense of peace, blessings for meals. And finally, it gets down to requests for others, concerns about our country, concerns about global problems and injustices. And if you catch the big trend from this kind of data, here's what I think. It's like, man, our prayers are too often too small. They're too often too narrowly focused on kind of our personal realities or what's right in front of us, but not about like what's going on in our city or our community or our world. I mean, think about your prayers this past week, and I could think about mine. If you prayed, and if God rubber-stamped a yes on everything that you prayed for, would anything change in our world or just in your world? I mean, would anything change in our city or just in your home? Would anything change for people you don't know or just for people that you do know? I, mean, I think Acts 4 makes it clear we've got to pray bigger. We've got to pray bigger. We've got to pray with a recognition that God is doing something bigger than us, yes, but that in, includes us, that he's in this process of reconciling all things to himself. I mean, things in heaven and on earth because he's made peace possible through his blood shed on the cross. That's what Paul tells us in Colossians. And now, those who were once 
far from God and far from each other, they're able to be connected again and healed and restored. I mean, the good news of the New Testament and of Jesus's life is that wholeness is possible, that flourishing for all people is available, that God is like putting the whole world back together and he's doing it through his people, the church. And it's something bigger than each of us, but it, but it includes each of us. It's something we've all been invited to be a part of, and it's something that God wants us to both pray for and participate in. I mean, rather than focusing the entirety of our spiritual existence on our own selves or our own souls, Jesus invites us, and Peter and John model for us, a, a kind of bold faith that's built on big prayers that also, in addition to looking inward, sure, but also looks outward to others and to their needs. I mean, if Acts 4 has anything to say to us today, it's that we've got to pray bigger. We have to together. I have to. I mean, guys, seriously, as I, as I worked on this message this week, I did begin to realize that, man, this message, this is for me. I mean, most of my prayers are that, like, things in my house won't break down, that the light that came on in my car dashboard is just because the oil cap wasn't screwed on tight enough. You know, like, God, I can't afford it. You know, I don't want to, right? Sounds like maybe you've prayed the same prayers with those giggles. Guys, my prayer life, it is, a, it is so narrowly focused. And it's not bad to ask God to, like, move in my life and help me in my life. I need Jesus. You need Jesus, right? That, it's not dismissing that. It's just saying the invitation is broader. God's work is bigger. There's something expansive at play that he's big enough to work in every nook and cranny of my own heart and also big enough that he can involve us and be involved in restoring and reconciling our entire city. I mean, Jesus's first century followers, they prayed big prayers, prayers that were focused on others that weren't first and foremost self-saturated or self-concerned. So if you're interested in praying bigger prayers, uh, here are two questions maybe that could be helpful, questions you could ask before you pray, uh, questions that I think can help broaden our focus and expand our perspective in prayer. Uh, two questions, if we want bigger prayers, we can ask ourselves, what is happening in my community and where is God moving? And what is happening in my community and where is God moving? What's, what's happening in my community? What's What's broken and in need of reconciliation? You know, what's not, what's not working for people? What or who has been neglected? What's creating unnecessary difficulty in other people's lives? What feels heavy or impossible for my neighbors? What's, what's unjust? What's happening in my community? I mean, this is a great question before we pray to just expand our minds a bit and go, hey, hey, what's going on out in the world, God? What's happening in my community? And then the second one, and where is God moving? You know, where is God already at work? Where is God already making reconciliation happen? What, what organizations or individuals is he moving through and using to restore parts of our city? And, and how can I pray for them? How can I get behind them? How has God been preparing people for the news of who he is or the help that he wants to give them? What's, what's happening in my community and where is God moving? And these are two questions that can expand our perspective and our prayers. Uh, they can turn our attention from a narrow inward focus to a broader outward perspective. And when we pray like this, friends, when we pray like this, I think we're doing exactly 
what Jesus did when he was on earth. You see, in, in his final few free moments just before he was arrested and killed, Jesus prayed in a garden. And his prayer was huge. It was a big prayer. He prayed that his followers would be known by their unity and by their love. He prayed for them to be agents of restoration and reconciliation in their communities. He prayed that his followers would be bold and active, even in the face of opposition from the enemy and the forces of evil. He, he did not pray for his own comfort or his own safety or for the elimination of the pain he would experience in crucifixion. He had a, a different perspective. He prayed that God would continue to draw people together and that God would empower them to care for and love one another and their neighbors. His final prayer was a big prayer. And I would say we are here this morning because those prayers were answered. Because the Spirit has indeed empowered generations of Jesus' followers throughout the centuries to look outside of themselves and to bring good news of salvation and redemption and reconciliation to people who have not yet heard or have not yet experienced it. And so what do you say, friends? Will you join me in praying bigger prayers? And could you start asking before prayer, hey, what is happening in my community and where is God at work? You know, what is happening and where is God at work? What's true is that this morning, we have even a bonus opportunity, not only to just change the way we pray, but also to change some of the ways that we've been behaving or some of the rhythms of our church. This morning, we get to put a little bit of action behind our prayers. And what do I mean by that? Well, you see, from the very beginning of this new church, it's been our desire, and if you've been around here, you've heard me say it, it's been our desire that we would be a family on mission. What do we mean by that? We'd be a place where people belong, there's a family here, but then also a place where people have like a purpose out in our community and out in our city. A place from which people would like step into our community, find themselves transformed, and then join the transforming work that God's already doing in Cincinnati and around the world. We want to pray like Jesus, sure, big prayers, but we also want to live like Jesus. We want to sacrifice our, our time and our talents and our treasures for the good of our neighbors. And so to that end this morning, I am very excited to announce that one of our summer projects, do you like summer projects at home, little stuff you're trying to get done? Okay, one of our summer projects at church this year is to get our local and global outreach teams built up. And in fact, both of those teams, local outreach and global outreach, will be having this like call-out meeting informational lunch on Sunday, June 13th, right after our worship services. Uh, if you're interested in that, mark your calendars. There will be more information But Sunday, June 13th, big Sunday for us. Local and global outreach teams will have these informational lunches. But right now in this moment, we have an opportunity together to take a collective first big step towards becoming vitally engaged in our city. And what does that big step look like? Well, it's actually a very simple step. Uh, that's a survey that you're going to hear about a little bit, but I'll let uh, the people who made it tell you about it. So our local outreach team, it already has some co-leaders, and they are right here. Uh, it's my good friends Mike and Sue Snyder. If you haven't met them, uh, they're phenomenal folks. But I wanted to invite as our like uh, greeters pass out these surveys that we have, and there's pencils. We'll get them all out for you, but wanted to invite Mike up. 
uh, to talk a little bit about his passion for local outreach. Uh, he'll explain the survey some, and we'll have an opportunity again together. Think about the survey through this lens. This is a step we can take together to be better engaged in our city and to do the work that Jesus has not called you to do. So, friends, now as the band comes up um, and we get a chance for kind of our final time in worship and just our, our few moments together before we, we wrap up here today, uh, I do just want to encourage you, even with how we begin, there's a lot we've covered. I mean, just to summarize, sometimes our prayers are they're just too small. And there's a broader mission God's inviting us to be a part of. And I love the song we sang right before this message that's asking, like, Lord, where are you moving? What are you saying? What are you doing? And so in these final moments, we'll do what we frequently do here. We'll have time to process everything that you've heard or felt or needed to just, you know, dialogue in your head that's happening. I know that happens sometimes during a sermon. We want to create space to process that. So there's going to be a great song that we could all sing if you need to worship a little more. Uh, there's the Lord's table available as we have it each week and kind of the wooden boxes there, uh, space to remind yourself of Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf, his bloodshed for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you're new around here, um, it says it on our little note sheet, but the Lord's table is always available for Jesus followers to take in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for them. Uh, there's people that would love to pray with you kind of in that back corner, sort of, you know, in those walls by the door. Uh, there's space for you to process and pray on your own. But whatever you do, I'd encourage you, use these final moments to connect with God, to ask the Spirit, hey, what do I need to remember? What, what do I need to do differently? How should this engagement with Acts, this discussion about bigger, broader prayers, how should this form me and shape me as I leave this place? All right? Will you do that now?